You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dunnis. That's Ben Folks. We're both senior writers in MMA for The Athletic, and we meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, how you doing this week? I'm doing all right. How about you? I'm doing okay. Doing, uh, doing about the same as ever. Just going to keep on keeping on, I suppose. It's all you can do. It's all anybody asks of you. Well, no, we ask a whole bunch of other things of you. That's true. Keep on keeping on. Produce a bunch of podcasts every week. Uh, that's about it, I guess. Watch out for some children. Maybe yeah, try to teach them. the math, things like that. Yeah, I hope nobody is actually counting on me to teach anybody math because that would that would be terrible. That would be a terrible role for me. Yeah, you know, uh, the whole trying to kind of get an education in here for my children somehow here and there. It takes some weird twists and turns that you're not always expecting, uh, but. Uh, you know, the nice thing is that you have the flexibility that when somebody wakes up with a bloody nose and there's blood just seemingly everywhere, sprayed all over your house like a damn horror movie, you can be like, you know what? We're going to go ahead and take the initiative here to delay the start of today's school day while we deal with this situation. Wow. It sounds like you guys are really living up there. Oh, yeah. We're living. You can call it that. Don't forget, everybody, you can also run out and get yourself a co-main event podcast logo t-shirt right now over at cottonbureau.com. We got those for sale. We got cowboy astronaut cigarette t-shirts for sale. We got Dundasso t-shirts for sale. Those are always available on demand all the time. Whenever you want them, you can go over to cottonbureau.com. Get yourself into some co-main event podcast merchandise today. We got music this week from our guy, uh, Ras Jarborg. If you like what you hear from him on this episode, you can check out more over at soundcloud.com slash S-T-H-L-M Rass. That's Stockholm Rass, our guy, providing us with the music this week. Three rounds, as usual, in the co-main event podcast this week. In round number one, Dana White had a conference call with fighters for the upcoming scheduled UFC fight cards. And now everything is fine and nobody should worry at all. And in round number two, Ben had an interesting conversation with an epidemiologist last week who said that the UFC could safely begin putting on events again, just probably not as soon as May 9th and not with a whole lot of hassle, not without a whole lot of hassle. And in round number three, with no fights still on, what classic fights are the best way to pass the time? We got some ideas and so do you. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Tracy Dickinson, who writes, So Tony Ferguson decided that he needed to make weight for a fight that wasn't happening. As things stand now, he'll need to be doing it again in three weeks. If there wasn't any indication that he'd be fighting again anytime soon, I, uh, I would have had a weird respect for him uh, with doing so because he quote-unquote signed a contract. As things stand now, though, it concerns me that it may affect him with having to do it again in three weeks and how it'll impact his performance against Gaethje. Uh, this should be an extremely entertaining fight, although I'd give my firstborn for it to be against Habib, but I'm scared about what might happen if Gaethje ends up beating him. Can you put yourselves within Tony's mind brain uh, for why this was a good idea and why 
uh, and how to put my mind at ease. Please, Ben, did you see this? Tony Ferguson went out and cut weight for yeah. uh, his canceled fight against Sabine Nurmagomedov, even though he didn't have to make weight and they weren't going to fight. Yeah, but if your question is, can you put yourself within Tony's mind brain? The answer is no. No, I cannot. Like, I don't think any of us can, right? Isn't that one thing that we've learned about Tony Ferguson? If we've learned nothing else about Tony Ferguson, we've learned that he marches to the beat of his own drummer. No one else can hear that drum beat most of the time. And it's pointless to even try. You can't, I mean, it's what we love about him in a lot of ways, right? But it's also, in situations like this, it makes it kind of difficult to sit there, think through it all, and go, yeah, no, I can see what he was he's thinking here. This makes sense uh, when you just see it from Tony's perspective. I mean, again, it is perhaps the most on-brand thing Tony Ferguson has ever done is make weight for a fight that's canceled. But uh, if you're asking me to help explain it in a way that it makes sense or that sounds like a good idea, I don't know if I can do that. I also, though, you know, experienced fighters who know how to cut weight and everything uh, – I don't know if it's going to be a big deal in the end. Like, I'm, if it's if they end up fighting three weeks from now, I don't know that the difference is going to be that Tony Ferguson cut down to 155 on his own several weeks before he absolutely needed to. If anything, it's a little bit reassuring to see, like, okay, he can do it on his own. He, we were concerned about how that was, like, people training at home, people handling their own stuff, and trying to get fight ready when they don't have the same access to their gyms. Here's somebody showing you like, yeah, okay, I, I know how to do this. I can just, I can cut weight and, and get there whenever I need to. So in a way, maybe it's reassuring. Yeah, I think you're right on both counts. First of all, no, we cannot put ourselves into the mind brain of, of, uh, Tony Ferguson, El Kakui. Why would we want to? It's probably scary in there. I think that it would be, uh, a frightening experience to try to walk in the shoes of Tony Ferguson for a little while. But secondly, I think that you hit the nail right on the head, Ben, when you said there's something weirdly on brand about this. Like, even though we can't begin to put ourselves inside the mind of Tony Ferguson, there is something that just weirdly makes sense about the fact that he would do this, cut all the way down to championship weight uh, for a fight that had been at least postponed, uh, hashtag champ shit only. But I can't exactly tell you why. But there's a weird, there's a weird logic to it—a yeah. Tony Ferguson style uh, moral compass that leads you to the path of, of you know, having been contracted to make the weight on this date and and deciding you were going to do it anyway, even though the other guy probably wasn't. Yeah, I, th- see, that's the thing too is that I can't exactly explain it. But when Tony Ferguson is like, "Well, hey, I I want to show everybody." who's riding with me that I, I'm going to do what I said I would do. And that includes making weight on this date. And I mean, I got to respect it that it feels like, as Mick Foley would say, Tony Ferguson is out here living his gimmick. You know, like it's, it is not just a thing that he does some of the time when the cameras are on. Like you can imagine this guy sitting around at home, sunglasses on indoors, being Tony Ferguson all the damn time. And this is just another example of that. Yeah. Um, just in terms of how he's going to handle the weight cut again three weeks from now, I don't know how relevant this is, but I would point out Tony Ferguson was on The Ultimate Fighter back in the day. Back in 2010, he was on season 13 of The Ultimate Fighter. Some of you may recall that is the one that was coached by Brock Lesnar and Junior Dos Santos uh, leading up to their canceled fight that we talked about on Friday during the co-main event podcast Power Hour. Was that the, uh, um, t- was that the Brock Lesnar chicken salad out of chicken shit uh, season? Brock Lesnar's been on a couple seasons, right? Right, yeah. But that's, I mean, I remember one of them where that that was just his line that he seized on and repeat over and over again as if it were some kind of Zen coaching mantra. Got to make chicken salad out of chicken shit. 
Yeah. I, I couldn't tell you. The Brock Lesnar episode's a tough kind of run together in my yeah. mind, I'll be honest. <laughs> yeah. Tony Ferguson fought three times on the Ultimate Fighter and then came back and beat Ramsey, Ramsey Najem in the finals uh, in June of 2011 to win that season of the Ultimate Fighter. So uh, even though he is you know considerably older now, this was almost 10 years ago, I, I don't feel all that unconfident in his inability to to do the weight cut again and i don't think that it will deplete him that much he has some uh some experience doing this stuff he did he made weight three times on that show in pretty quick succession so uh i would think for tony ferguson this is kind of just business as usual even though it's very unusual well yeah and he also he wrestled in college a little bit i mean didn't do the full college stint or anything but uh went to uh, community college and went to a couple different universities wrestled there so if you go through a college wrestling season i am guessing that you have some experience doing fairly frequent weight cuts uh i don't know i i don't let's just say there are a lot of variables in this still i think we have to consider tentative fight with justin gaethje I, I'll, I'll admit that maybe this is one of them but i don't think it's going to be a difference maker i don't think that uh, this this weight cut is anything more than just tony ferguson doing tony ferguson shit yeah, in the grand scheme of everything that's going on with UFC 249, I would have to think whether or not Tony Ferguson is going to hit 155 on the nose and whether or not that's going to affect his performance. One of the smaller concerns, just if we're talking worldwide right now, uh, in terms of whether or not UFC 249 will happen or how it will be if it does happen. Next question this week comes to us from Nate Amos, who writes, Apparently, the big honey Zulu Zeno has found a new life as an athlete in Russian slapping competitions that may or may not still be occurring despite uh, COVID-19. Looks like Dana is behind the times with Fight Island. Apparently, he could have just used a Russian prison a la Undisputed Film Franchise. Enjoy some uh, word-slapping video, fellas. Uh, did you see this, Ben? That uh, Zulu, Zulu Zeno, who we, we just watched his fight against Fedor a couple weeks back over on the Power Hour, he showed up in Russia for one of these slapping championships, which I know you're probably familiar with. You're a guy. You're a man about the internet. You've probably seen these Russian slapping championships before, right, Ben? Oh, I've seen them. So Zulu Zeno shows up, and he slap fights with the with the champion of this thing, guy by the name of Dumpling, nicknamed Dumpling, over there in, in Russia. Uh, I don't know how much how many spoilers we should do for this, but this is really something. Did you have you watched this video? Yeah. Uh, first of all, I think I can't tell if Nate Amos is being funny here with the big honey Zulu Zinho or are we trying to, was, is that a typo when he meant the big homie Zulu Zinho? I don't know. I like the big honey Zulu Zinho. <laughs> it does feel weirdly fitting. Uh, yeah. See, this is where I really wonder about myself as a combat sports fan, because if you were just going to tell me like, Hey, you want to see a video of a slap fighting competition? like where guys just take turns slapping each other. I mean, I have to heave a heavy sigh and then admit that, yes, I do. Yes, yeah. I suppose I do want to see it. And God, what does that say about me? But then when you tell me Zulu Zinho's in one, well, now I don't want to see it. I have to see it. Yeah, not only Zulu Zinho in one, he, he got hot shot to a, to a shot at the title if they have a title shot or a title in the slap fighting competition. Uh, I'm just going to tell everybody what happens. First of all, the video is amazing because it starts out with like a 15 or 20 minute uh, like video vignette about a guy being sent to prison and realizing that the one way he can fight his way to freedom is through the slapping championships. 
And then you get into the actual slap fights. You know, some guys slap each other. If you've seen it on the internet, you kind of know what you're getting into. Uh, then we get this, uh, I guess you could call it the main event between Zulu Zeno and this guy named Dumpling. Uh, it, it ends in a draw, Ben. Everybody gets gets five slaps. And uh, when both guys are left standing, it is declared a tie. Uh, even the people standing around seem a little bit unclear on what the rules are supposed to be at that point. But my favorite part of this whole thing, Ben, when the slap fight is declared a draw, these guys just whip out some cash. They just whip out a wad of cash, count out some uh, rubles or whatever they are to Zulu Zeno and then also to Dumpling. And that's just the end of it. They just like give these guys cash and then we're left to believe they just go about, go on about their merry way. Isn't that exactly how you want it to work though? Like, isn't I that guess so? Yeah. Like, if it turned out that we're, they were going to be paid via bank transfer in seven to ten business days, wouldn't you be like, well, that doesn't feel in keeping with the spirit of this event? Yeah, you got to wait for the money that we already put in escrow to clear, and then you will get that deposited via direct deposit anytime now. No, that's not how it is. You go over to Russia to have a slap fight. You're just hoping that the promoter and the suspenders has a big wad of cash stuffed in his front pocket. And you're probably right. You know, like you probably like, – I mean, the most professional you could see it being is if it's a money belt. Like if it comes out of like one of those old school money belts, you know those? Yeah. Like yeah. that would be the height or of professional. Or if he takes it out of his sock. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, you he's not an idiot. He's not going to roll into a slap fighting competition like waiting to get pickpocketed. You, you know, but that, it's, this is important money. This money needs – this money has a purpose at this competition. Let's keep it safe. Let's put it in a sock. Business yeah. sock. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, one of the other things that strikes me is that it doesn't seem like it's all that much money. So I'm wondering, did Zulu Zeno travel all the way from Brazil to Russia to have this slap fight for what seems like, you know, a couple thousand bucks, maybe 1500 bucks? Well, I mean, you're saying like you feel like how did this interfere with his other business plans? Like, I don't, I don't know. I'm just how saying many- it seems like a long trip for not much payoff. Well, you get to see the world. There's your payoff. How about that? I guess that's true. I guess that's true. And it's a building uh, block in your career as a slap fighting champion. Yeah. Last I heard, Zulu Zeno was trying to make a comeback in MMA. He was trying to get over there, signed in, in Ryzen, thought he could have a couple fights. And the next thing you know, here he is at the slap fights. So I don't know if, if things didn't pan out with Ryzen or if this is something he could do in his spare time. But there he is, slapping the uh, slap champion, slapping him to a tie, which is pretty good slapping. If you're Zulu Zeno in your Not very bad first Not bad slap off. Uh, the other thing that struck me when I was watching this, Ben, is that there seems to be rules in this thing. Like uh, both guys are chalking their hands before they do the slapping. And then once the slapping occurs, there's, you know, the uh, we're watching a video, obviously, that's in Russian. But the uh, the video that I watched from over on Bloody Elbow had the uh, had subtitles on it. So you got to I guess we're uh, we're assuming those are correct. But after the slaps, it seemed like there was some inspecting of the of the facial regions of both both fighters to make sure that no, no uh, quote unquote fouls had occurred, which means leads me to wonder exactly what a what a foul is in a Russian slap fight championship. Uh, wearing your class ring, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, of course, that there's rules. Like we're not we're not savages, Chad. We're sportsmen, sportsmen who enjoy some just some good face slapping. Nothing yeah. wrong with that. So I guess uh, if you haven't seen the video of Zulu Zeno slap fighting the Russian slap fight champion, what are you waiting for? Get over there and watch this thing. Yeah, it's not like you have anything better to do. He gets fired up. Zulu Zeno gets fired up. He's screaming out, Brazil, in between, 
in between the slaps and whatnot. Yeah. No, I mean, wouldn't you be disappointed if he was kind of blase about the whole thing? I guess so. I mean, if he's going to be in a slap fight, I want him to be 100% committed to the slap fight. Yeah. Well, listen, one promise I will make to you right here and now, Chad Dundas. If I ever find myself in a slap fight, I'm going to be 100% committed. I'm not going to yeah, go in there half-stepping. I want you to be committed to the slapping. Uh, and I can guarantee to you that as your second, I'm probably going to be wearing a backward kangol and chewing on an unlit cigar that I'm going to be there to make sure that you put everything you have into the slaps. Yeah. I'm gonna, And I'm going to need you to unbutton the shirt at least like mid, mid sternum. And let's get you four or five gold chains in, in, in the nest of chest hair there just to really show people that we did not come to fuck around. No, there's no way I'm wearing a shirt to this thing, man. I will be wearing uh, dress slacks with suspenders and no shirt, but copious gold, cha- gold chains, so you don't have to worry about that. Nice. Next question this week comes to us from Patrick Milder, who writes, I train at American Top Team Indianapolis. I'm just a run-of-the-mill neuroscience PhD candidate with an amateur and amateur MMA fighter, so while it's annoying I can't train, my amateur fight keeps getting postponed. At least I'm still employed for now. I agree for public safety, fights should not happen. I know that we worry about UFC fighters not being paid enough, but I think we overlook that those guys are the lucky ones. A lot of my teammates are pro MMA fighters that have become instantly unemployed. And the skills of fighting in a cage don't easily transfer to a different profession. I'm just wondering if you had any thoughts on what should happen for the local MMA fighters who have more skill and experience than Greg Hardy or CM Punk will ever have. This is uh, all while being paid five and five if they're lucky. They now have no way to make ends meet without events with audiences coming back. This is uh, this is an interesting question, Ben, and, and a good email uh, from Patrick Milder. I want to say thank you for him to uh, to him for writing this in. Uh, we do focus a lot, obviously, on the national MMA scene because, frankly, that's what we cover and that's what most of the people who come to this show want to hear about. Although this is, in some ways, an interesting point, just because you know, does, despite the plight of the UFC fighter by and large, uh, those those guys and women obviously do have it better off than people who are still fighting in the independent circle. Yeah, well, first of all, I want to take issue with Patrick Miller describing himself as a run-of-the-mill neuroscience PhD candidate and amateur MMA fighter. I don't think there's anything run-of-the-mill about that. I don't know how many of those we have in the United States right now, people who are – I think there's a little bit of sarcasm there, a little bit of sardonic uh, inflection there in that that statement. I just don't think we have a ton of people who are – I mean, we got some either-ors. We got some neuroscience PhD candidates out there and we got some amateur MMA fighters. We don't have too many who are both, so point there. Uh, but also, yeah, I was talking about this just today because somebody asked me a, a question about how are the regional MMA promotions making it in a time like this. Like, it asked me this question in the MMA mailbag. And, you know, there are some of those promotions that probably will not come out of this just because they can't afford a, a six-month shutdown. And they need to hold live events. They don't really – it's not an option for them to just be like, okay, we'll do an event without the crowd and we'll rely on our TV rights and our, our pay-per-view sales to carry us through because they just, that's not how they make their money. They make their money by people coming in the door and by, you know, selling VIP tables, cage side and selling in arena sponsorships, that kind of thing. And so if they can't put on events where you can pack a couple thousand people in there, then there's just, there's no money coming in for them. And the thing that I think makes it really difficult for a lot of fighters, we talked about this a little bit is how most of the fighters, at least like I know who are not making a living completely off of MMA 
And that includes some people who are in the UFC or Bellator even who, you know, they make some money that way, but they, it's not enough that it can be their only source of income. And a lot of times, the other thing that is their source of income falls into one of the realms that is also shut down right now. Like, how many guys you know who work at the gym where they train or, or, or train clients or something or own gyms? Uh, or, you know, how many fighters have we known over the years who were bouncers or bartenders at some point? They tend to fall into a lot of those industries where it's not like they can just, con- well, okay, I lose lose the fighting portion of my income, but, you know, my uh, software development job is still working, so, like, I, I can do that from home. I mean, sure, there's, there's some of those people who have jobs that they can still do from home. I mean, Miles Johns and his golden doodle breeding business is a good example, but there's a lot of those people who, right now, they're taking the hits from all sides. And, I mean, I don't, I don't know what the answer is for those people. I think... I would think the answer would be hopefully we have you you know you live somewhere where you have a, a government that is looking out for you enough that in, in a time like this where we're not just telling everybody like hey good luck try not to starve out there we'll let you know when we can get back to business as usual uh, but because a lot of those people like the question of the MMA mailbag was like are we going to see a whole lot of people retire and say you know what I can't I got to do something else I can't keep doing this and the thing is it's hard to change careers right about now like if this is if this was your thing it'd, it'd be a hard thing to go okay i'm going to choose a completely different job a completely different career field and i'm going to start to get into that uh, i think a lot of these people who are at that level as mma fighters right now they're doing it because it's a thing they love to do and because they have a dream of getting to the higher level and uh, i mean i don't know if they were doing it just because like i think we've said before if you're doing this because of financial reasons like you think this is my path to financial independence as MMA fighting, it's probably, unless you're John Jones, it's probably not a good idea because it, there's not enough money in it for that to be a, a feasible goal for most people. Yeah. I mean, not to get off on a uh, tangent here, but if anything that that the pandemic has reinforced over the last several weeks is that weeks is that it's, it's, uh, it's pretty important who your local leaders are. Yeah. Your statewide and like uh, local city council, um, state legislature, governor level people <laughs> can impact your life a great deal. So, uh, you know, people need to be paying attention to those elections also, not just getting blinded by the, uh, by the nationwide stuff, the stuff that gobbles up all the headlines of the big newspapers. Like oh, your local stuff is arguably more important just in terms of how you're going to be treated and how you're going to, going to live through all this stuff. Are you telling all the co-maniacs out there to get up off the couch and run for city council? Yes. Yes. Okay. Nice. And we will we will sponsor those campaigns, right? You know, we'll TBD on that. Okay. We'll take it under advisement. Yeah. Talk to our accountant. Last question this week comes to us from Dave Shirley, who writes, can we assume this, this plays into, I think, what we're going to be talking about here in round one, Ben. So can we assume Disney is okay with the May 9 return date for the UFC? I'm sure Dana is going to push for what he wants to do, but I can't imagine he'd be able to pull this off without their consent. Now, Ben, ordinarily, I would say, yeah, like we can only assume that if the UFC is going to forge ahead with a May 9 date here, that we've probably cleared this at every level. Anymore, man, I couldn't even tell you. Yeah. I mean, I can be reasonably sure they did, but uh, who knows? Who knows at this stage in the in the ballgame? Yeah, well, see, that's the way the last one went down made me wonder, at what point did people at Disney and ESPN know what the plan was? And at what point did they decide that they wanted to step in there and stop the plan? 
Was it just when the heat got dialed up? Because if they were fine with it before they started hearing from you know Diane Feinstein and, and Gavin Newsom, then that means that they probably have a pretty high tolerance for stuff like this, right? Like they they didn't hear this plan to go off at a shuttered hotel casino on tribal land without the oversight of the California State Athletic Commission and think, okay, that sounds like a bad idea. Let's do something. Like if they only said, let's pick up the phone and call Dana White when they started to hear from other people who were turning up the pressure on them, then that suggests that as long as that doesn't happen again, they will be okay with the UFC going forward. I mean, you got to imagine that when you're having this conversation about, hey, we'd rather you not go ahead with this event, that if he turns right around and is like, okay, well, we're going to do May 9th, that you're at least going to have a conversation about that, right? Because otherwise, like, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to just piece by piece start letting him get to the late stage planning of these events and then calling him and telling him to stop. Like if you, if you want him to stop going forward or if you have conditions that you want to be met, then it seems like you would have those all in one conversation or at least close to that first conversation. So if the UFC is able to do this and schedule this in a way where it does not prompt that same kind of backlash from elected officials or the New York times or powerful people who are leaning on one another to do something about it, then it stands to reason that, uh, they're not going to voice any objection. Yeah. The the tolerance for all this stuff from the broadcast partners and from, I guess, ultimately the parent companies, both at uh, Endeavor and at Disney, has been kind of remarkable to me up to this point. I would have thought that uh, that they would step in and, and call this thing off for a longer term uh, period of time. But it, it seems like, uh, you know, at least at the federal level, they're talking about trying to fire normal life back up as quickly as possible, despite the fact that every qualified medical expert and every news report that I've seen says that that's a terrible idea and that we're not ready and that it's going to have a huge backlash and we're going to have this uh, enormous surge of second wave cases, maybe even bigger than the first. And so it seems like, uh, well, we know Dana White's following that protocol since he's he's uh, a part of it, shockingly enough, as a member of the uh, the economic advisory committee that we are led to believe is doing something to uh, advise the president of the United States about how we're going to all get back to normal, quote unquote. Uh, so I'm, I'm not surprised that that he would go along with it. Uh, but I am surprised a little bit that that we haven't either heard more from ESPN or Disney or that they would be on board with a May 9th uh, recovery date, just because it doesn't seem like all that much could possibly change between April 18th and May 9th. So uh, it seems like the main thing that could change is where you do it and what the circumstances of you doing it are and who you have as your oversight, like government, state commission stuff. Like if you can go somewhere and like if you go to the, the UFC apex or something and you have the Nevada State Athletic Commission being like, hey, we've talked to the UFC and we've heard their plans. And under this specific circumstance, we say yes, you can go ahead and do it and we will be there with you to make sure it all goes okay, then I don't see Disney or ESPN voicing any objection to that. Yeah, that's a great point. And the situation in certain American states has changed over the last couple of weeks. So it is a possibility, I think, at this point that you could get a state athletic commission to sanction this thing uh, depending on where you want to have it. And that is something that we will talk about coming up in round number one. As for right now, though, that's going to do it for listener mail. Thanks for your questions, comments, concerns. If you have those in the future, you know how to get a hold of us. You go to the website, co-mainevent.com. 
and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. Of course, while you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And if you don't like it, why, it's really easy to unsubscribe. You know what else you can do and that we would recommend? You can go over to the Patreon page, uh, patreon.com slash co-main event and so- uh, sign up to become a member over there, a supporter of the co-main event podcast. Get yourself a lot of extra stuff every single week. We got the live chat every Wednesday. We got the power hour every Friday. And of course, uh, every couple of weeks, we give you one of those sweet, sweet movie club episodes. In fact, we've got one coming up this week where we're going to watch the movie Foxcatcher. And also watch the 1996 fight between Mark Schultz and Gary Goodridge. And we're going to be talking about all that stuff. So head on over to patreon.com slash co-main event. Sign up for the team and make sure that the discourse on this podcast remains unfettered. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, as we noted in the intro, it didn't take long for the UFC to go ahead and get UFC 249 rescheduled. At this point, the plan is for it to happen on May the 9th. We are uh, still not sure where. We will talk about that more in a little bit more detail coming up. We've got a slightly revamped fight card, a bit of a Frankenstein here with a bunch of different uh, fights that were supposed to be not only on the UFC 249 card, but on some of these fight night cards that were around uh, the same time. And even uh, UFC 250 car, uh, fights have been uh, added in here to the new UFC 249 card. Uh, Tony Ferguson and Justin Gaethje, we are led to believe, will still go off for the interim lightweight title in the main event. Henry Cejudo and Dominic Cruz, uh, Amanda Nunes and Felicia Spencer, Francis Ngannou, and the biggie boy, Jeremy Stevens and Calvin Cater. Uh, Donald Cerrone and Anthony Pettis is an interesting one. And, of course, Greg Hardy and Jorgen DeCastro. And then you got... Uh, some other stuff here sprinkled on down the line. Carlos Barza, Michelle Watterson, Jocka Ray against Uriah Hall, and some other fights, uh, those probably being the most noteworthy. Um, I don't know where you want to start with this, Ben. Obviously, we got the conference call that Dana White held with with fighters that we want to get to. But is, does anything strike you immediately either about this this rescheduling for this for May 9th or the kind of revamped card that we have here? Well, if they're actually able to pull off this card, I'll say this, it's a really good looking card. It's a lot of fights that I actually want to see there. I'm still not sold on the whole interim lightweight title thing. That seems like just kind of a classic UFC, let's yank a belt out of the supply closet kind of move, especially if the interim itself until Khabib Nurmagomedov is ready to fight is only you know a few months, then it seems especially silly. And since Tony Ferguson has already had his dalliance with the UFC interim strap, it seems that part of it seems a little bit ridiculous. But when you go down the list and you look at these fights, I'm like, yeah, this is the kind of stacked pay-per-view that you haven't seen from the UFC in a long time. They, they haven't done this kind of thing. You know, Usually this is the, the type of stuff that's reserved for the really big like UFC 200 type events. And so, yeah, uh, if you're able to pull this off, I think a lot of fight fans are going to be pretty excited about it. The question for me is where and how. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, well, let's get into that. This week, reports indicated Dana White held a conference call with a number of athletes that uh, are either booked on this this fight card or are booked on upcoming fight cards. And he made a, a few things clear to them. Uh, I am looking at the MMA Junkie story by Nolan King here. Uh, there were some bullet points on here. Fighters don't have to fight if they feel unsafe about it. Uh, here's an interesting one to me. White's participation in President Trump's coronavirus economic task force has given him insight in some, quote, non-public details uh, that are leading him to have confidence that May 9th is going to work out. And here's the here's a big one here. Locations are secret. According to Nolan King, White was not willing to reveal any details concerning the location of the next UFC event or his proposed fight island. I will also uh, say, Ben, I talked to a fighter yesterday who is going to be fighting on one of these upcoming cards or is at least scheduled to be fighting on one of these upcoming cards. And they told me that they sent him his contract and uh, he signed it and it, it has all the details except where the fight is going to be. Well, see, so that's a. I guess I understand from the UFC's perspective why they're doing that because if you start telling the fighters where and the managers where the fight's going to be, then you might as well tell everybody because it's going to get out pretty soon. But it does. There's a inherent conflict in telling you, "Hey, look, anybody who feels unsafe fighting during this time, say so, and we won't get mad at you for not fighting." But then, if you don't tell me where I'm fighting, how am I supposed to gauge how safe it is for me to go there? Because that that could make a huge difference. Like it, I, I was talking to fighters when I was doing stories on uh, the initial plan to keep UFC 249 together and talking to fighters about, you know, how are you training? How, how you're planning to get there? What are your concerns? And several of them said stuff to me of like, you know what, if it's somewhere where I can drive to, then I feel a lot better about it. Even if it's a long drive, even if it's a drive that takes a couple days and I have to cross a couple state lines to get there, I'd much rather do that. I don't want to get on a plane right now if I don't absolutely have to. And so that the location is going to matter for people because if if you're trying to calculate the risk then that the the travel element and how you're going to get there and what it's going to take to get there those are big aspects of the risk so if you don't give them complete information it's hard for them to make a fully informed choice it would seem yeah and on top of that like as we've talked about a few times here you've got a bunch of fighters all training under different circumstances right uh, and we might as well just start talking about the state of Florida right now, because I think it's going to come up here in a couple seconds when we start to discuss where UFC 249 might go down. So you've got this situation in the state of Florida where pretty recently the governor down there uh, declared professional sports uh, like a, a, a an indispensable business, right? Like a, a, a an essential industry that that can reopen in Florida. So basically, if you are training at a gym in Florida, if you're at American top team uh, in Coconut Creek or anywhere else, like you can go to the gym. You can legally go down, leave your house, go to work, go to the gym, work out. If you work in a different state, like California, for example, I got to believe that uh, you can't do that. Yeah. I mean, that I'm sure you, one of the Sarah Longo guys or like our uh, Longo Weidman uh, gyms out there in, in New York, then it's a even scarier situation. Yeah, absolutely. So Dana White says additionally on this uh, conference call that he's going to be meeting with the Nevada governor. He wants to get the Apex open. He wants to get the UFC Performance Institute open. Uh, he's not sure when any of that will happen, but he's going to be meeting with Nevada Governor uh, Steve Sizalak pretty soon to talk about that stuff. Let's talk about where UFC 249 might go down, Ben. Do you think that Florida is the most likely place right now, just given that that 
like I said, uh, Governor DeSantis down there has recently declared professional sports and essential business. The WWE appears to be operating down there. Um, there had been reports around the original April 18th date of UFC 249 that they had been talking to venues in Florida uh, before they ultimately settled on Tachi Palace in California. From where I'm sitting, it seems like the most likely place for UFC 249 to go off would be Florida. Are you feeling the same way? You know, I don't know. I was reading a Stephen Morocco story at MMA Fighting about this same conference call. And there's a note in there that it, where he says that uh, Dana White told fighters that the UFC is working with the Nevada government to promote in Vegas starting in May. They haven't finalized uh, anything yet. Upcoming fight cards will likely be held in the U.S. To me, if you could get the State Athletic Commission on board, it's, doesn't it seem like the UFC Apex is your best bet? Just because it's your own facility, so you have way more control over it and just how you want to use it, who gets in, and, and how you, you handle that whole aspect of it. Uh, also all you, you already have a commission that is inclined to be friendlier to you because they know they're going to have to end up working with you in the future. They, you know, the, the Nevada state athletic commission has worked pretty closely with the UFC in the past. It's the UFC's home base is in Nevada. It's not that hard to imagine the UFC reaching out to them and going, look, here's what we're doing. We're presenting no extra special risk to anybody by doing events at our own apex facility like you let's talk about you guys sanctioning because it seems like the commission just kind of shut down for april as i don't want to say a just a preventative step but it seemed like they kind of punted on that one they were going to meet again in late april and talk about what they wanted to do after kind of a temporary shutdown and then they decided you know what we're not going to do that meeting after all and so we're just closed for all of april it would seem like nevada is not doing too badly with coronavirus cases from what i've read so I could see the UFC convincing them that, hey, you know, we've got our own facility here. This is going to be safe. And if you get the commission to sign off there, then you already have so many like things already in Las Vegas. If you're the UFC, like that, you could you get the Performance Institute, which the UFC also said on this call. Dana White apparently said that they're working to get that back up and running. Uh, the meal service, their trifecta meal service, looking to get that back up and running soon. Plus, in Las Vegas you have a whole lot of shuttered hotels and casinos that right now aren't operating. You're going to need somewhere to house all these fighters. And as we'll get into when we talk more in, in round two, you're going to have to have pretty good control over those just so that it, you maintain some degree of safety. If you got all that stuff already in Las Vegas, I, I mean, you got a friend who owns some hotels and casinos in Las Vegas. It seems like you ought to be able to find somewhere where you can be like, okay, we'll just take over this hotel for a little while. We can house our fighters here. And then we just put them on a, in a van, drive them down the street to the apex. And they, they, they can fight there. We can broadcast the whole thing from there. And got our own in-house production thing. That would seem to be like the simplest option, as long as you can get the commission and the, the state government on board with it. Yeah, but you just said the million dollar thing, right? I completely agree with you that if you can get into Las Vegas and you're the UFC, that's the the ultimate situation for you because like you said, you have all the infrastructure there, including the the Performance Institute where people can train, including the Apex where you can basically run your own uh production straight out of your own facility and not really have to move all of the uh the on the ground support people that you would normally fly out to a a pay-per-view event. They're all right there already. But like and I realize that what I am out am about to say uh, seems somewhat crazy given what we have seen from the UFC over the past several weeks. But like, how could you be moving forward right now on April twentieth as we record this? How could you be full steam ahead 
uh, for a May 9th date with UFC 249 if you do not already have a location locked down. Because we hear on this conference call like, okay, Dana White is planning to meet with the governor of Nevada soon. Uh, Well, if the governor of Nevada tells him no dice, we're not doing that right now. Uh, then you're out of luck again. I would have to think that if you are so confident that UFC 249 is going to go down on May 9th, you already have to have some venues in mind. And I would think rather than stake all of that on Nevada opening up somewhere in the next two and a half weeks, you might look to the state that has declared itself already open down there in Florida. Uh, The other thing that strikes me, Ben, is like I said, we're recording this on April 20th right now. So you are two little little over two weeks away, two and a half weeks till Saturday, May the ninth. Uh, it seems like you would already have to be like quarantining people and 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 like testing people and like just in terms of quarantine. Clearly, that's not happening because everybody is still off in their own towns, training or not training, or going to the gym or doing stuff that they can do at home. I don't even know what the situation is. It just seems like. Uh, the hoops that we have to d- jump through to get this thing to come off safely on May 9th, I don't necessarily know that we are doing that right now. Yeah, well, okay. I mean, at least in terms of like the timeline and what you have to do, we'll, we'll talk more about that in round two. But I would say this, uh, you, you bring up valid concerns. However, my counter question to you would be, how did the UFC settle on the date May 9th? And the answer to well, that's that... That's the date UFC 250, right? Exactly. It's again, the same situation that it was with UFC 249. It's not like they're looking around at the situation and performing the calculations and crunching the number and looking at the data and being like, okay, when is it when is it safe and reasonable or when do we think we could have this done by? They're starting with the date. They're starting with the date they already had on the calendar and then they're working backwards from there to scramble to put it together last minute. Like that's that's what they've been doing with all these events. They're not like setting dates based on the reality or like based on the availability they're trying to make the dates they already have work. And so that I think explains like how you could be confident or like claim to be confident that you can make this event go off on this date. If you don't already have a venue look hooked up, it's because you're the UFC man. And you're just, and Dana White's just, he's pretty sure he can get it done. You want to bet against him? That's the, that's the attitude that like leads you down that path. So it's not hard for me to imagine that the UFC is going May 9th, we'd like to do this. And if we can't, then we might do something else. Heavy sigh. Heavy <laughs> sigh. Heavy uh, sigh. Indeed. All right. Let, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will uh, we'll move on to round number two. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? Chad, I was just looking at the MMA headlines and I see Vitor Belfort talking about how he's still going to show up in one championship and fight. Are you fucking kidding me? I had totally forgotten that was even a thing, man. <laughs> What were your feelings though? Did you feel, did you like feel relieved for Vitor? Did you feel, I don't know. When I saw that news, I was like, oh, good for Vitor. You know what? My feelings on that were, we're going to know everything we need to know when Vitor takes off his shirt and we get a look at the physique for that, that first one championship fight. Cause it's all going to be written right there in the man's torso. And you know what I mean? Fucking kidding yeah, me? No, I, you fucking kidding me. Uh, ben, you know, John Jones is back to beefing. Oh God. You know, he uh, had the run in with the law. We're involved in this pandemic, but he's back to beef and he's beefing with everybody out here in the light heavyweight division, including your guy, Jan Blagovitz. Here is the uh, John Jones tweet that he was sent out. Uh, he wrote, now suddenly I'm afraid of a good dog fight. Pretty sure I walked him down for 25 minutes straight when we fought, uh, meaning Dominic Reyes. Uh, he says, I'm feeling like popping some cherries in Poland. Haven't had that yet. 
So that's a weird one uh, right there. But then Jan Blagovitz replies on Twitter, so it's a date. Can't wait to fist you. Huh. Is that a typo? Are you kidding me? It's either a typo or we're lost in translation or we're going for some gross sex references. Any possible way, I'm going to say, are you fucking kidding me today? (laughs) Are you fucking kidding me? That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, last week, I think we talked about how we had both read a interview that Patrick Ruby did with his uh, Substack newsletter with uh, a epidemiologist from Emory University named Dr. Zachary Binney. I reached out to Dr. Binney because he touched on it a little bit about the UFC's plans to come back. And I wanted to kind of see what is somebody who this is actually their field and they know a lot about this and also know a lot about sports and the, where the two kind of intersect. What would a safe UFC event look like right now or, or in the near future during this stuff. And so I called him up. We had a conversation about that, uh, published it on The Athletic last week. But it ended up being a really interesting conversation where he kind of outlined, I like, hear the steps you can take, but also kind of outlined that these steps you can take lower the risk. You're never going to get the risk down to zero of having a, a COVID-19 outbreak if you get a bunch of fighters together and you know swapping sweat and blood and everything else. And yet, you can take some steps to mitigate the risk, and the fewer of those steps you take, the higher you allow the risk to be. And as he's outlining this stuff, it was pretty stringent like measures he wanted to see somebody take. A part of me was listening to it and going, well, I'm kind of amazed that this stuff is even doable. That you know, you could, it's feasible. Like when Dana White said that, that quote, I think when we had it in the uh, Breakfast of Champions last night, where he said, like, hey, this can be done. It's, it's, not a, it's not cheap, but it can be done. And so talking to Dr. Benny, it helped me realize, you know what? It can be done. And yet also when he was describing what you have to do in order to do it, I couldn't help but feel like the UFC is probably not going to do all this shit. Like the UFC is probably more likely to just do what it feels like it has to do to get everybody off its back. Because what he's talking about here is a pretty strict like quarantine and pre-testing and maintaining essentially a biodome, like a very stringent process that you have to go through. And like you alluded to in round one, you would have had to have started already in order to be ready to go by May 9th. Yeah. And like we said, like we were talking to people who were supposed to fight on that, on that night or, you know, the next several uh, UFC events just for our job over here the, the past couple of weeks. I haven't really had anybody tell me they're doing that. I haven't had anyone mention, oh, by the way, uh, I got to do this quarantine thing for a couple of weeks before I go down there and fight. And then I expect to do it again a couple of weeks after. No, no one's mentioned anything about that. Everyone's just trying to do their training, get ready for their fight. Yeah. Well, and one of the things he said that really resonated with me was that he was like, you know, people think, what, I can just show up outside the quarantine zone, stand right outside it, you give me a test, we find out if my test is negative or positive. If it's negative, I go inside, I stay there until my business is concluded and I leave and everything's fine. And that's just not the way it works, that it takes a while for the virus to show up on the test for one thing, 
basically you'd have to be tested and then tested again, you know, kept in quarantine in between those times before we can really be sure that we can let you into this, you know, what he kept referring to as a bio biodome kind of situation where like we, you know, if you take the UFC apex, for example, like just as a hypothetical, like say we're going to do it at the UFC apex, say we call up our buddy Lorenzo, get him to loan us a, a station casinos uh, hotel or something, you know, we house everybody there. And then it's like, there's the part that I think a lot of people aren't considering is you need a lot of support staff to make that really work. Like you, not only do you need all the usual people you need from the commission, you need officials and you know, referees, judges, people you need to make the broadcast part of it happen. Also people who you got to answer the question, do these people go home at night? Like, do they go home to their families? Do they go back to their regular lives or do they have to be in quarantine too? Like if they're working for you, if they're on site at your events, do you, is it a thing where that's what we're asking of them? Like, Hey, if you're going to ref like Herb Dean, if you're going to come ref these fights, you got to stay here. Like you can't just ref the fights on Saturday and go home on Sunday. And that I think is going to be an important question at the end of answering. But then it's also like, if you're housing them all in these hotels or something like that, you, you've got to figure out some kind of situation, right? Where you need a place for them to train, you need a place for them to live and you need to have that environment pretty well controlled and sterilized. And so that you're making sure you're not having people who are infected or, you know, asymptomatic carriers of the virus coming in and out of there, then you need a bunch of support staff to make that happen. You need somebody to be cooking those meals and cleaning the rooms and doing stuff like that. And what about those people? Can those people go home? And how do you make sure you're maintaining this environment? And if you, if it's like, it's this porous thing where people are coming in and out of it, then there's no way you're going to be sure. Like at that point, you're just hoping. You're hoping that you don't get unlucky and have a coronavirus outbreak. And if that's all you got is hope, then that's not really what people are asking for when they ask her if you're taking like all the necessary precautions to have a safe event here. Yeah. And you're just talking about making an event come off Saturday, May the 9th, as we found out on this uh, conference call that Dana White had with the fighters. Uh, the goal is to have fights every Saturday night starting May 9th. Like this is just, they are picking back up with the schedule and they want to basically go back to business as usual, doing a fight every week. That is to say nothing about uh, Fight Island and, and trying to get people in and out of there. Uh, it seems like if you are going to be having a fight every week, uh, you would have an almost impossible situation in terms of quarantine just with people coming in early. If you were trying to do it correctly, I guess I'm saying people coming in early, being in quarantine, people fighting and then staying after. But oh, by the way, you got this next group that just came in. It seems like a huge logistical nightmare that would be just ongoing for as long as you would want to try to do this until uh, there was a vaccine or until uh, coronavirus infections had had lessened to the point that we were ready to, to just open the pro sporting world back up to how it was before. It just seems like a, uh, an impossible situation to me if you are the UFC trying to trying to make this vision happen. Well, yeah, well, one of the things that uh, Dr. Benny said to me after we were done talking on the phone, we talked for like a, you know, a half hour or so on the phone, and then we traded some Twitter DMs after that, and he was saying, you know, the Fight Island thing is interesting from the epidemiological perspective because at least theoretically, the island should be easier for you to maintain a sterile quarantined environment on just because of the difficulty in getting off or on it. Like that, especially if it's some small like private island and other people don't even know the exact location of it, 
you would you'd think have really good control over who gets to come there and then who gets to leave. Like one, one of the big things he said that is a concern is you can establish this kind of quarantined biodome situation, but then you also have to have really tight security to make sure people aren't sneaking out or sneaking in. Uh, and you can imagine a bunch of reasons people would do either one of them. You got to have uh, really tight control to make sure like any kind of deliveries, any kind of thing coming in or out that you have total control over what goes in or out and that nothing happens there without you being sure that it's safe for it to happen. And that if you did have a fight island and you got your own island out there, that's part of it becomes easier at least to pull off. But then also the whole enterprise seems like it becomes way more expensive to pull off because then you basically are having to create this just self-contained unit where, you know, nobody's cooking your meals on the private island and then like jetting off home probably. I mean, everybody's probably pretty much staying there. So it gets easier in that sense. But then it also, you start to ask, when does this become so expensive to run that it's not worth whatever you're making by doing the events? Like that's the part I wonder about when, whenever I hear Dana White talking about this fight. Cause he keeps saying stuff like the infrastructure is being built and it's like, okay, so you're, if you're doing all this stuff, and then you got to have like this full staff, all, like basically living there in order to make it all happen. How is it still profitable for you? And oh, by the way, fighters, if it turns out that it is still profitable for the UFC, even to <laughs> move everything to an island, that should tell you something about how much money the UFC is making and how little of that money it's giving to you, and you know how much available cash there still is uh, for any given UFC event. Yeah. Man, can you imagine the nightmare of trying to quarantine a bunch of fighters and their teams while they're cutting weight and getting ready for an event? I mean, no. We've seen people show up to the cage without their mouthpiece, right? (laughs) And then, and you got to get them one. Can you imagine all the stuff during a fight week with weight cutting and everything else that goes on where each individual team would be like, oh, by the way, we need XYZ? We didn't think of it before. But uh, it turns out we really need it now. Yeah. Like, well, and just like, impossible. just the sacrifice you're asking them to make beforehand, too. Like, you, you need them to be keeping themselves, like, somewhat quarantined, at least, like, before they even get there. And, I mean, the situation that, the, that Dr. Binney outlined was more like, Everybody shows up someplace, like wherever you're going to have the fights. If you're going to do it in Las Vegas, everybody shows up in Las Vegas and you have like kind of a, a first site that they all go to where you're keeping them and you're keeping them in quarantine and a place for them to train and everything, but also a place for you to do a couple tests before you even let them in to the really secure zone. And so it's like when you start adding all those different layers, you also start adding a, a whole lot of expense to the whole thing. And it's just hard to hear it and imagine the UFC going like, okay, yeah, we are going to do all these things. It's a lot easier to imagine the USC going like, all right, what's the the minimum we can do where people won't give us a bunch of shit for it and we can just kind of get through it. And the, there's also the question of, as everybody who's paying attention to the news in the United States right now knows, availability of these tests is a huge issue. And it's, it, we hear about it daily, that there's just not enough tests, that the capacity to do all the testing is not there and the testing is way behind where it is in other places and about and where uh, we were told it would be by now. And so then if someone like the UFC does come up with enough tests where they can afford to do, you know, at least two tests for every person that is showing up to these events, like including all the fighters, all the, the coaches and trainers, 
all the staff work on the events, if they have that and they can, they have enough tests to do that every single weekend, then it becomes an ethical question of, wait a minute, shouldn't you be leaving those tests to people who actually need it, like more essential activities? Well, just as we talked about in the previous uh, round, I don't, I don't know if you're expecting anyone to have any moral quandaries anywhere around these, these events. Uh, all right. I'm going to ask you the same thing that we talked about before April the 18th. If you had to go with your gut, Ben, right now, as we record this, does UFC 249 happen as scheduled now on May 9th? I think there's a better chance of it happening on May 9th. I would say, yeah, like even uh, the question of whether it's a good deer, a good idea or not, I don't know. But uh, I think that there's a better chance that the UFC will now find a way to push through and make it happen. The thing that I wonder is, like, if you do have somebody come out of this and they test positive for it by the time they get back home or something, like, just how big of a disaster is it going to be? Because it's like you can imagine a situation where some fighter leaves and then two weeks later we find out, like, oh, he's dealing with coronavirus. And, you like, you can – if you've been around this sport, you can map out the response in your head. For one thing – you would consider the possibility that somebody would have it and they would keep it quiet because they wouldn't want to get the UFC in trouble and have the UFC get mad at them. Uh, or you can just imagine the situation where the UFC responds to me like, well, hey, he, who knows how he got it? You can't prove that he got it here. You know? But like, how big a, uh, a stain is it on the UFC that has already had some of these kinds of issues when just nobody else was looking or like the, the mainstream spotlight wasn't on them? How big of a deal is it if the news starts to circulate, oh, wait, the UFC has an outbreak. Like four fighters who fought at UFC on May 9th are now positive for coronavirus, you know, two weeks, a month later. Like how big a deal do you think that becomes? Yeah, I think it depends on how big the breakout is, right? Like uh, the outbreak, I should say, because um, you would have to notify everyone, right? Right. Like there's no, you like you said, like you could see someone trying to keep it a secret, but you would have to notify everyone who was at that that event, which would be, I think, like a couple hundred people at least. And if you're running people in and out of that place every week to do different fights, who knows how many people you'd have to to notify. Uh, yeah, it would be bad. It could be really bad. I think it depends on the 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 fallout from the from the outbreak, like the actual human physical toll of like how many people get it, if anybody dies, how many people are hospitalized, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I agree with you. I feel like uh, UFC 249 is probably going to happen on May the 9th. Not necessarily that it's going to be conducted in an absolutely safe way, but it just seems like that's the way that, that the country is trending. And it seems like all the people involved in making the decision of whether or not this fight should come off are going to be kind of on the same page. So we will see what happens, I guess. Yeah. As- <laughs> the the only other thing I would say is that I would hope that all the media people are on the same page. And especially I think the ESPN guys, because they're in a difficult situation. They're It's tricky being both a a news outlet that's reporting on the UFC, but then you're also the broadcast partners with the UFC. You have this kind of uh, access that nobody else has to the UFC and to its higher ups. But then I think that also we got to consider that comes with the responsibility to do some reporting with that access. The one thing we can't really allow, and that hopefully the UFC would realize that people aren't going to allow, is to just say, hey, don't worry about it. We're, we're taking care of it we're all going to be safe. Everything's going to be fine. And we don't need to tell you exactly how we're going about guaranteeing that. Cause that's what the UFC tried to do last time with that's what Dana White seemed like his whole plan was around UFC 249 on April 18th. 
And hopefully the UFC realizes you can't do that. With this kind of thing, like the concerns are so high and the, the microscope is on you here, you're going to have to tell us what you're doing. And you're, you're going to have to have like a detailed explanation of what you're doing and wh- why you arrived at that conclusion that this was sufficient, that this was safe. And if we in the media, every media outlet, but ESPN especially since they have that kind of access, if they're not making sure that they are getting the details about that and they are hearing like good answers to questions about that, then that has to be a major issue. Yeah. That's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, with no new fights coming out these weeks, as we all sit at home, self-isolating, self-quarantined, etc., etc., it seems like a lot of people are going back to uh, watch old fights, going back into the uh, the Wayback Machine and checking out the archives here at UFC Fight Pass and elsewhere. I know we have some fights that we wanted to talk about in terms of uh, stuff that is fun to go back and rewatch. I put out the call on Twitter earlier today to have some people uh, let us know what they've been watching. Let us know what they had enjoyed. And of course, some people showed up to to give us those replies. I'm going to start with our guy, Nicholas Jenkins from here in uh, Missoula, friend of the show, not only because we like him, but also he's going to bring up a uh, a fight that I wanted to mention. He says, there's never not a time that Randy Couture versus Tim Sylvia will not make me feel great. I remember being in a Missoula bar called Hammerjacks. Hammerjacks. It was smelly, smelly and gross and packed with people for this fight. When that first punch from Randy down Tim, the whole place went nuts and it never calmed back down. So when I'm feeling particularly low, that's the fight I go to. Been watching it a lot lately. See, I was going to mention uh, Randy Couture versus Tim Sylvia as a good one to go back and rewatch just because uh, of the uh, of the, uh, the the way it played out. Randy Couture kind of comes out of retirement, goes back up to heavyweight and just mauls Tim Sylvia to reclaim the heavyweight title. Yeah, well, I mean, you're going to get 25 minutes of fighting action out of that one. It's going to pass a little bit of time. I guess so. It's not – I don't see the fights like that where I'm like, once you know that Randy Couture wins that one, I don't know if it's as quite as exciting. I mean, it still is – Still glorious. Of, still glorious. It is pretty glorious when he drops Big Tim right off the bat. I mean, it's glorious for everyone unless you're a Big Tim Sylvia fan. Then I'd say steer clear of that one. Do you, do you feel like we have a lot of Big Tim Sylvia fans as our listening audience? main huge demographic for us okay if you say so huge listener base what was the fight you were going to recommend ben well you know one of the ones that i have a fondness for just because of my memories of seeing it in the early days is frank shamrock versus t ortiz yeah way back because that was the first one that i remember seeing and i remember watching this when i was in college a young whippersnapper just getting into jujitsu pretty seriously and watching and watching some of the early ufcs and everything but then watching that one and realizing wait a minute we're really doing a sport here now like you could see this one of the first fights at least that i remember where you're watching it and you kind of realize like people are adapting a strategy and a game plan around the rules and the like the cage environment and they are learning stuff to, that works for that environment rather than just coming in and being like, well, I developed my style of five animal kung fu uh, for the streets uh, to take on a, a tax by gangs. And now I'm just going to put it to work in the octagon. Like Now people were training specifically for what an MMA fight looked like. 
and you could really see it from both guys in that fight. And it's just a great back and forth battle. Yeah. Yeah. What's the one from the early two thousands that has Eric Paulson in it? Is it Matt Hume against Eric Paulson? There's, there is a, like a real early pioneer fight between a couple of those guys that I remember watching where it's like you, you can, in retrospect, you can see how ahead of the, their time they were uh, because they are actually like doing sports stuff when everybody else was just sort of like showing up uh, with their mesh shorts with the pocket on it, hoping it, that things were going to go okay. Yeah. Well, and the other thing that I like to do when I just want some uh, crazy fighting action is the greatest no contest of all time, Nick Diaz versus Takanori Gomi. Okay. There you go. There you go. That would, uh, that would bring you some, some pleasure, I guess, some joy. Also not a bad one, uh, to watch today on 420, if you know what I mean. And we all know what you mean. Uh, our guy, Frank Furig on Twitter hit us up to say Clay Guida versus Tyson Griffin was like watching weasels fight in a bag. <laughs> okay. That's not bad. We're going uh, back a pretty to accurate UF- description. UFC 72, June of 2007 for that one. So that might be one you want to check out. Our guy Cameron Chapman hit us up to say, uh, I caught on to the UFC in 2005. So during the pandemic, I've gone back to watch all the early UFC fights to get an education. What struck me most was how not uh, no one even wanted to wrap their wrists or hands. What the hell, man? Uh, they're either asking to break their whole shit or signaling they're not throwing a single punch. Plus, uh, they've all got on wrestling shoes. So they're going in there saying, one, I'm not punching. Two, I'm also not kicking. Three, prepare for this head and arm throw into a side headlock. Tank Abbott was the only one smart enough to show up with fighting gloves. Unbelievable. P.S. UFC Mark Kerr was unbelievably terrifying. God, he was. He just, just getting off the bus. The, the ultimate getting off the bus award went to that early Mark Kerr. Yeah. Totally you natural too, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Naturally, naturally built. Natural body on natural supplements. Uh, one of the things I remember about Mark Kerr showing up was that it was back during this era where it seemed like everybody who showed up would never be beaten. Where it was <laughs> like, oh, man, Hoist Gracie is so good at this. No one will ever beat him. And then it was like, oh, man, this Mark Coleman guy. Nobody's ever going to beat this guy. Look, at he's an animal. And then Mark Kerr shows up and you're like, well, this guy, no one's ever going to beat this guy. Look, look how terrifying he is. And then every, you know, most of those guys that it seemed that way, uh, they had their weaknesses exposed shortly thereafter. So that's one of the things I remember about Mark Kerr. Still fun to go back and watch his early UFC fights, though. I really thought that Mark Kerr's weakness was going to end up being the uh, Rip Rules Ranger fighting style. Ranger yeah, Greg, Greg Stott. Stott. Yeah. Greg Stott didn't didn't get it done. I feel like they you should know, run that tra- one back. I tried to reach out to Greg Stott to do a story about him for The Athletic, but he never got back to me. So I don't know if he's uh, – He's not interested in talking about it anymore. It's possible he doesn't want to talk about that. Yeah. Uh, Just to the point of people not wrapping their hands in those early UFCs, when we were watching UFCs 1 and 2 the other day, I remember thinking that that a couple of guys showed up at least looking like they had wrapped their hands to the extent that they were allowed to. Yeah, like their wrist, basically. Yeah, their wrist and like – not up over the knuckles, but I think guys like Pat Smith, guys like – I feel like Gerard Gordieu maybe had had his hands wrapped. There were, there were some guys who, who knew that that was trouble and were trying to mitigate it to the extent that they could, it seemed like. Yeah, and Gerard Jar- Gordieu still end up breaking his damn hand. I mean, that will happen. Those things happen in MMA. This one from our guy Andrew Pearson. He wrote, uh, I recently watched some classic grappling fights, some of which I had seen before and some of which I missed. They are showcases of what only M- MMA can be. Tim Elliott versus Louis Smolka. 
I missed this one, but it's nonstop scrambling with two rounds of the weirdest grapplers in the sport flowing and reversing each other uh, for three rounds. Oh, I'm sorry. Two of the weirdest grapplers flowing and reversing each other for three rounds. Uh, Charles Oliveira versus Nick Lentz too. my all-time favorite grapple fest. Lentz, the wrestler versus Oliveira, the submission hunter, which also has great striking and clinch exchanges that force Lentz to return again and again to his wrestling. Oliveira schemes a myriad of different ways to spring a death trap on Lentz. Wow. Andrew Pearson. That's a heck of a sentence. Oliveira schemes a myriad of different ways to spring a death trap on Lentz in the labyrinth that is his ground game. That makes me want to go back and watch that fight. Yeah, that's that's a good sell right there. Uh, Charles Oliveira versus Hatsi Hioki. Very underrated. Oliveira just isn't in boring fights, and Hioki really took it to him in the grappling department. And the classic, the fight that got me into MMA grappling, Kazushi Sakuraba versus the big homie, Manny Newton. Wow. Wow. You know, uh, this this reminds me, though, uh, on Twitter today, the – the account that's a godsend for all of us looking for just random fight videos throughout the day on Twitter. Uh, you got Kaposa, the Grubaka hitman out there. He was posting uh, clips from Choke, the documentary Choke, about Hicks and Gracie and his run through the Valley, the 1995, I believe it was, uh, Valley Tudo Japan Open. And I think he posted the clip of Gerard Gordou against Yuki Nakai, where there's about a hundred pound weight advantage and like a foot and height difference between him. And Gordou not only sticks his thumb just like knuckle deep into Yuki Nakai's eye and then is punching him repeatedly even after Nakai is outside the ropes and all the officials, there's like three different officials at cage or ringside trying to get Gordou to stop. And he's like reaching around them to continue punching Yuki Nakai and then gets fucking foot locked after all that shit. Uh, this permanent damage, I think to Yuki Nakai's eye. Uh, but then he posted the entire choke uh, or like a video clip of the or link to the entire choke documentary so if you go to at grabaka underscore hitman on twitter you can watch that entire choke documentary if you haven't if you have never seen choke somehow it's worth watching like just as like a good well done documentary and a real snapshot of where mma was at the time yeah you if you haven't seen it you absolutely need to watch that one uh, a couple more here. Our guy Brandon Boyd says, was super bored and pulled up the UFC all-time record for individual bouts. I came across Forrest Pets versus Sam Morgan at UFC Fight Night 6, August the 17th, 2006. Pets knocked Morgan down a record five times. Uh, it also had the widest margin of decision in the UFC history, 30-23. Wow. Uh, also, the main event was Diego Sanchez versus Carl Parisian, the 2006 fight of the year. So yeah, there you go. You might want to go back and check out UFC Fight Night Six if you can find it over on thefightpass.com. Yeah. Uh, our guy Mike Jones back then, yeah. Our, Mike Jones, you think this is Houston area rapper Mike Jones? Okay, let's sure. Let's let's assume it is. So today, while quote unquote working, I went on ESPN Plus and ended up watching uh, the T Ferg and Edson Barboza fight. The first round of this bout involves Ferguson attempting three Imanari rolls, with only one being semi successful. The second round has both fighters throw inside elbows about three seconds apart uh, that ends with both of their faces covered in half crimson mask, Phantom of the Opera type shit. I guess. Uh, I just want to say this fight is fucking awesome. <laughs> so there, that's another example. Go watch t- uh, Tony Ferguson versus Edson Barboza. Uh, I was just thinking about it. I went back and looked at Sakuraba's record. Were we talking about the big homie Carlos Newton? Oh, there we go. That must be it. See, Not I thought the, that was weird. That uh, Yeah, because I was like, did they compete in like a grappling competition? I didn't know about it. I think I would remember if uh, the universe had put 
Emmanuel Newton in about with fellow Weirdsmobile, Kazushi Sakuraba. But also it reminds me, somebody else was posting a clip of this, one that uh, I still stands out, I think, as the only instance where complaining about a bad stoppage actually worked is when Sakuraba lost to Conan Silvera at UFC Japan back like his only UFC Sakuraba's only UFC appearance I believe it was a bad stoppage he went he was going for a takedown after getting jacked with some punches and in the moment right there to the referee it looked like he'd been dropped by the punches but he was actually shooting for a low single or something he complained a lot threw his mouthpiece tried to get on the mic just freaked out over the stoppage and then they they I guess talked to Conan Silvera who is uh, old school hard ass in his own right and they just decided to do it again brother so they just came back out later that night and then Sakuraba wins the second one yeah so the little homie Carlos Newton yeah uh, <laughs> there you go sorry you know what in these weird times we'll let it slide yeah we'll let it slide Andrew Pearson I'm gonna let it slide for that uh, sentence about Oliver and Lentz just yeah. because of that you'll be thinking about that uh, interest- interestingly enough let's close it out here with Michael Westifer who says one of the more unusual fights I saw in my early days of watching MMA that piqued my interest was Carlos Newton versus Kazushi Sakuraba it looks like they may have had an agreement to not punch each other because for the first few minutes they just grappled and to be honest it's kind of beautiful so oh, there's that that's kind of sweet I guess that's where we'll leave it Thanks for tuning in this week to the Co-Main Event Podcast. Wait, 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 did I get to just saying stuff? Oh, shit. Just saying stuff. You almost I forgot. Guess, yeah. Let's, I, I did. I almost forgot. What's your just saying stuff? Well, Chad, I saw this thing. Uh, I, I'm reading off of Middle Easy. They're talking about uh, BJ Penn doing a recent uh, Instagram live chat with his coach, uh, Jason Perillo, uh, and talk, talking about whether he'll fight again or not, saying that it takes a lot of work, too much fucking work maybe. Uh, and at, at this age, maybe he's not going to do it, but doesn't seem to be ruling it out entirely. And then there's this quote. There's so much people telling me to fight again, Penn said. Other people telling me don't fight again. It's a lot to take in. I guess this week, I'm just saying, who are the people telling him to fight again? Because yeah. we need to have words with those people. They are not helping this situation. They need to get in the other camp of people telling him not to fight again. I'm just saying. Those people may, may not be his friends. Just yes, saying. That's possible. Well, Ben, I'm just saying this week, did you see Frank Mir out here saying that he's a free agent and he is going to accept job offers to fight or, you know, maybe just be a color commentator? I like one of those options a whole lot better. That kind of tells you everything you need to know, right? (laughs) Like, (laughs) if a guy is out here saying he'll take, uh, he'd really like to apply for a job to fight or, you know, maybe just to commentate. Who knows? Whatever. Depends on what openings you have. Are you just saying that maybe from that description, it sounds like Frank Mir would, uh, it's kind of up for anything you got, but if you got the one that doesn't involve him having to get punched in the face in order to get paid, that'd be better. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of like, I mean, I'll come over and mow your lawn if you want me to, but, uh, is there anything, uh, is there any jobs open where maybe I just uh, – I watch somebody else mow the lawn? <laughs> yeah. Or you could just give me 20 bucks. That would be cool too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I feel like uh, he's leading the witness a little bit there. I'm just saying I don't object to it. Yeah. All right. Well, that is going to do it for the Co-Main Event Podcast. Thanks everybody for tuning in. Remember we got a bunch of fun stuff coming on the up on the Patreon this week. Check that out. Live chat on Wednesday along with the Movie Club and of course on Friday another – episode of the co-main event podcast patreon power hour as for right now though we are done we are through we are out 
You know, one thing I think that you really have to appreciate about Yuki Nakai finally pulling off that footlock on Gerard Gordou after getting his whole shit broke, uh, he has a great celebration. You'd think after getting beat up like that and basically blinded in one eye, you might not have it in you to get up there and really celebrate with the crowd and everything, but uh, Yuki Nakai digs deep, and he's going to enjoy that moment. He's not going to let that slip by. Yeah, focus on the positives. Don't focus on the lifelong uh, damage to your eye. Celebrate. You just get your celebration on. you got to live in that moment because then you're going to have to fight Hickson later. Yet another thing that's just going to separate me from an MMA fighter. Yes. 